You're listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others. Individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards. As we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Welcome to the 202 Studio. From the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, I'm Jeffrey Scott. On today's episode, we're joined by a writer of fiction and nonfiction, a strategic storyteller and literary host, Walona Sloan. Walona, thank you for being here. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your uh, career as a writer. You've uh, covered a whole lot of different aspects and topics in writing, everything from, from covering travel and food and music in the more uh, journalistic sense, but you also have written poetry and creative writing. So w- what drew you to, to the craft of being a writer? So actually my story, I grew up in Northern Virginia, but I got into the punk music scene in DC in like 91, 92. And so my start as a writer started with doing a zine. So I wanted to interview bands and review records. And so that was kind of what got me into writing. And I remember I wrote a letter to this guy who ran this amazing zine in Boston. And I said, this is my experience. I feel like I, you know, I'm an outsider. I'm African-American. I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit in sometimes at school. And I really was hoping he would be like, that's amazing. You should write for my zine. But what he said to me was, you should start a zine. And I was like, that's never going to happen. Like, I'm not a writer. And it took me about four years. And then I started writing that way. So I did the zine for four or five years. And that was kind of what led me to become like an official arts writer and like sort of doing it um, for magazines. And this was Scorpion? Yes. Okay. And how old were you when you started Scorpion? I started Scorpion in college, so I was probably 19, 19, 20. That's pretty impressive. I felt pretty good about it, but I also didn't think anyone would read it. And so I thought it was just like something my friends would read uh-huh. and my brother because he got me into zines. But it ended up spreading pretty far around the world as far as just because I would trade with people in other countries and – there weren't a lot of black female punk feminists. And so it started to get some traction. And that made me think I could really be a writer one day. What sort of reach, distribution, readership do you think you got? Not So I would say numbers-wise, probably not. I think the most I ever printed was like 1,000 copies. And I probably ended up getting rid of 500. That was like one specific issue. Mm-hmm. But what I ended up doing was an international issue. It was like my issue five. And there was a book um, called Book Your Own Effing Life from Maximum Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. And it was different scenes that you could reach out to in, like Brazil was one scene I was really curious Mm -hmm. about. So I reached out to all the bands in Brazil and all the zines in Brazil and all the distributors and traded with them. So it was like, and I remember, this is actually funny because when I would reach out to people, they would be like, oh, do you know Brian from D.C.? Because he's been on tour down in Latin America. And so every country in Latin America would ask me if I knew Brian from D.C. Mm-hmm. I ended up meeting Brian from D.C. <laughs> he's a lovely guy. Well, that's good. <laughs> but that was how he had booked his band's tour in Latin America. 
So it ended up being like not huge numbers, but people would pass it around uh-huh. and people would send me pictures of them reading it in different countries. And it was really cool in that way. And you you had to self-publish, right? Yeah. At your own cost. And Definitely. This was back in the day of paper hard copy, right? Yes. So not just an online PDF yeah. that you could e-blast all around the world. Right. So that and it's that's a, a fascinating aspect of sort of the the self-publishing business back then and this particular particular type of that trading Mm -hmm. sort of thing of I have this one that I published and you published one so let's switch off and exchange knowledge that way it was cool I missed that part and people would so like distribution numbers since you asked it was like people would pass it on Mm -hmm. right so like I would have something I may give it to someone else because you can't ask for another one sometimes people couldn't I, my dad let me use his copier. My best friend's dad let me use their copier. And then I paid for copies. So it's like that was a privilege. So I couldn't ask people to send me two and three copies. Um, so you would pass it on to someone you thought might be interested. And so were you the were you the sole writer of yeah. the zine? And all of it was done by you? I was, you know, I wasn't, there would be some contributions from people, mm-hmm. but it was, I was a sole writer. And um I really got into it to interview bands. That was what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I I was really shy and I didn't know that I could get bands to do it. But what I found is that people took it very seriously. Like mm-hmm. this was their media. Mm-hmm. And if you were a zine writer covering punk, then they would do an interview with you. And and you, did you focus just on DC based bands or was it bands from wherever, but they were coming through D.C. It was just bands I was interested in. Okay. So, the, I mean, the band that I really wanted to get the interview with was Fugazi. So I ended up getting um, Ian to come meet with me. That was crazy. But oh, wow. um, it ended up, I did an issue. I was really interested in how local, like small DIY record labels were formed. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, wrote to a bunch of record labels in L.A. and um, different, just different countries and not different countries, but mostly in the U.S., and just ask, like, how did you get it started? How did you get it off the ground? How do you make it sustainable? And it was really practical advice. And it was really harder than I thought it was. Because I think at some point in my mind, I thought, oh, maybe I want to run a label too. And <laughs> no. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was kind of like whoever I was interested in. Uh-huh. And, and, of course, you know this. And a lot of people know this. But I think there are some people out there that don't realize just the, the role of punk in yeah. the musical history of Washington, D.C., yeah. and that it was, it really was a significant, you know, yeah. part of the musical landscape. The one thing I wanted to ask Ian when I met him was the, the combat or like the relationship between punk and go-go music. Mm-hmm. That was really important to me because I wanted to see if those are the two homegrown things in D.C., like did those scenes ever intersect or cross? Mm-hmm. And in some cases they did, not as often, um, as he said he would have liked. But for me, like, I really liked go-go music and I really liked punk music. And it was very rare to see them in the same space. But sometimes in the 90s, they were in the same space. Mm -hmm. Have you continued any sort of, like, research or chronicling into the history and the continuing development of punk? Uh, So I ended up doing... um, So no and yes. So about... I ended up stopping the zine in probably 2001, 2000. 
either late 2001, early 2002. Mm -hmm. And I had this idea I was going to do a, a flyer book. Mm -hmm. And so it took me probably a decade before I actually scanned all the flyers I had gotten, with the majority of them being from D.C. Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of them were contributed from people I had traded scenes with in other countries. And so with the ones in D.C., it was for me, it was just cool. Like some of the like sanctuary theater spaces, D.C. space, places mm -hmm. that weren't around anymore. Like I liked seeing those flyers right. and like putting together a timeline of history. Mm -hmm. But past that, um, I haven't really been keeping up. I, you know, I'm sort of stuck in nostalgia now. Of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that book is called Come to Our Show, yeah. the book of flyers. And it's available on your website, correct? It's yeah. It's free download. It's totally it. free. And it's in the DC Punk archives as well. At the library, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what I, the reason I kept it free is one, those flyers were a gift to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, um, I didn't always know who, or rarely knew who the artist was. I didn't want to take credit for, people sell those things, you know, mm -hmm. and so I don't, I didn't want to profit from it, but I did want it to be available to people. And I left it at super high resolution. So if like your favorite flyer is in there, you could print it out and mm -hmm. just, you know, hang it up. That's wonderful. And it's it's an interesting, I think that can sort of continues that tradition of of the sharing mm -hmm. and the trading of, you know, from the from the zines to yeah, that was my you know, idea. keeping it, you know, open source essentially. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about uh so then how did you make the transition from doing your own writing of your own, you know, personal passions and interests with punk music into writing for other publications and blogs on yeah. food and travel and whatever? Um, I think, so I ended up getting, you know, the post-college job that I didn't really want. And mm -hmm. I was disappointed. I couldn't go right into magazine writing or editing or publishing. And so <laughs> I was like, I'm sitting at a receptionist desk and it was a good gig, but it wasn't what I wanted. Right. And so I was like, okay, so how can I, people would say, just do the thing, like stop whining about getting the full-time job, just get your clips. And so it became um, writing for free, you know, for publications that were local or uh, pitching story, like really small stories to other publications. Um, and, and it would end up being something art related or local to DC. Mm -hmm. And now, and then you also, uh, teach as well, mm -hmm. writing workshops at the Writers' Center in Bethesda, and you've done workshops at other locations around yeah. DC. What, what drew you to, to the, the education aspect? So I, um, I did this skills diagram with my friend because I wanted to change jobs. This was about nine years ago. And the one skill I didn't have was presenting or, mm -hmm. you know, public speaking. I hated it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to ever have to do it. And I was like, the one thing I could, you know, I needed this skill, like to move on in my career. So it was like, the one thing I don't mind talking about would be writing. Mm -hmm. So I started by teaching a free class and I was like, you get what you pay for. Like, if it's not good, <laughs> it's not good. But, like, I need the practice. Right. And so it ended up people kind of liked it. And so when I ended up getting a grant, um, I expanded my teaching. And so I started doing um, more professional classes and then taking classes to improve my teaching. And so that was sort of something I'm really passionate about my writing. And so I've learned that I can translate that in a way that other people who are also passionate can help to develop their skills from some little kernel of something I say. I always try to bring um, better writers than me to the class. So like, you know, a text that we can dissect or 
you know, talking about the craft. And then people can sort of take that and use it however they want. Um, but it's become really enriching for me. It's it's become really important to like my own writing and like what I want to put out into the world. Uh, so and you, this was a, uh, a commission Arts and Humanities Fellowship grant that you had received, mm -hmm. which is the sort of uh, general operating support for an individual artist or humanities practitioner to mm -hmm. use in a wide variety of ways. And uh, a little bit more about uh, you used it for uh, rentals and of space. So I used it for two things. I used it, I was working on a novel um, that is yet unpublished, but I wanted, I had a draft and I wanted to get feedback from an editor. So I used it for that to get some feedback and um, to help me develop a subsequent draft. And then the rest of it I used to rent space and to um, do, so basically I wanted to teach, I think I taught a series of four classes. And so I wanted to rent space. I wanted to do advertisements. I wanted to get materials. And so that was a way for me to sort of um, fund that because, you know, space rental in DC is quite expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about travel. Okay. You travel a lot. I do. Um, and you've been going to Iceland? A lot. A lot. <laughs> I see. And which is yeah. a beautiful country. Yeah. I haven't been, but it I'm sure it's beautiful. Uh, what's anything in particular that first drew you to Iceland? Writing. Writing? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I went there first because um, I was a Sugar Cubes fan and I had always wanted to go. And people were like, it's not really a place for you. Like, that's not a diverse place. Like, you don't need to worry about that. Mm -hmm. And so it just never went away. And there was this... I was hosting, um, I almost forgot how it happened. I was hosting one of my events. So I started this series called Bright Drink Read, where we do writing in bars. And this one woman, yeah, I love it. And so this Very one woman. Way. <laughs> exactly. It's like, that's where people want to be. And so one of my students who had come to like everything I had taught from paid classes to these workshops, she came with this stack of flyers for the Iceland Writers Retreat. It was the first one. She didn't know where she got the flyers. Someone had left them on her desk. And she was like, I don't know what to do with these, but Walona will know. And I was like, I'm going to this thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know why you have these flyers, but I feel like that must be God talking. Mm -hmm. So I went, and what it was was these two women. One of them was Canadian, and one was American. And they had been living in Iceland, and they wanted to show, like, a tourism reason to come. But Iceland is a country where one in ten people will publish a book. So wow. it's incredibly literary. They love writers and they love the culture of writing. And so what they had done is brought these like Pulitzer Prize winning authors to Iceland as their retreat. Uh -huh. And then they took us on like history tours and um, they t we did cultural nights and music nights. And it was this really fascinating thing. And it turned out that the woman, the Canadian woman, had her husband give us history tours. Like there was like a golden circle and then he did like the history of mm -hmm. literature. He's now the president. So it's like such a- of the country? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's such a small country, uh -huh. but that can happen there. And like he was a history professor uh -huh. and she loves literature. And so like, you know, I'm like, this is a fascinating place. So I wanted to go back. <laughs> Because I also felt like, as a black person, it wasn't weird being there. And I didn't have any problems at all. Like, it's extremely homogenous. But um, if they love literature, I was like, what if mm -hmm. we 
uh, experimented with Langston Hughes poetry. Like oh. I bring you something and then you respond to it in the way I would have students respond to it mm -hmm. here. So I asked this person who I was like, you know, I'm not going to ask this, you know, be part of your retreat. But if you know of a partner that might host a program that I'm teaching, um, I would like to come back. And so she introduced me to a couple different people and they have um, an, a biannual literary festival. And so they were like, sure, if you want to teach a workshop during our festival, you can do that. So it was it was a literary remix class that I've taught in D.C. And so it was Langston Hughes and Native American poetry. So it was like Harlem Renaissance, Native American. And then I just like put it out there and mm -hmm. I said, please respond to these, you know, poems. So we would talk about what the poems were. That's why I say like bringing a text that's like better than me. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say this is what they're they're saying. But since you don't have that cultural history, right from what you know, yeah. And it was an amazing experience. And people were really generous and beautiful and willing to share their work. And I did one of my right drink reads there, which was awesome, super <laughs> fun. And uh, I went back again in April to do a residency there and to mm -hmm. teach another class at the library. That was just more low key, but it's just a place where I feel really comfortable as yeah. far as like, I connect with people and like they love literature yeah. and I'm like, what better place for a writer to go? Yeah. And that's a, that's really a, an interesting point that you bring up. If you, with a country like that, that is, has such a different history. And so the poetry of Langston Hughes or native American poetry is so American I yeah. mean, from the American history and yeah. everything. So how did they in Iceland respond to that? It's fascinating because I, so I had a friend that I had met at a residency. She was Australian. She came. So she didn't really know anything about the Harlem Renaissance either. Um, and the majority, there was like one American woman and the majority of people were just Icelandic people. And so I said, okay. So the other thing is they had been using my face to, um, you know, on Facebook. And so this guy came up to me in the library and he was like, oh, you're the writer. And I was like... <laughs> Wait, what? You're the one. <laughs> yeah, it was like me. <laughs> so uh, I think people just came to see what was happening. Because uh -huh. I said, oh, so, you know, who here is familiar with the Harlem Renaissance? And the other than this kid who actually um, had come, he, he was familiar with it because his dad was an English professor, but no one else was. They just had hmm. come. And I was like, well, that's going to be hard and interesting, too. So I started the conversation, though, I was like, I need you to understand that slavery in the U.S. Mm -hmm. stopped in 1865. And by 1920, people who hadn't been able to read or write led a cultural revolution that mm -hmm. we're still feeling the ramifications of. And the American woman in the room was like, what's happening? But we they had to mm -hmm. know. Yeah. You know, you right. can't start. You can't say, like, how amazing is a Harlem Renaissance when you don't understand that slavery just ended. Mm -hmm. And so we went there. And then when we got to Native American history, I was like, there's a couple of things you should know, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? And, like, they – in some ways I regret it because it kind of overwhelmed the senses. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, like, that was my job, mm -hmm. you know? Like, sometimes as a writer, I just want to kind of get into the craft. But – you can't understand what people are rebelling against if you don't understand the history. And so we just, we had to go there. Um, and so like one of the poems we ended up reading was, I think by Claude McKay, 
it was called Subway Wind. They don't have a subway in Iceland. Mm -hmm. So I said, has anyone ever been on the subway? And some people said they had in Paris or London. So there were all these little things that just were totally foreign to them. And so I totally applauded them for taking it on. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple people said to me, I got a lot of emails and people were like, that was really, you know, exciting and interesting. One woman was like, that was really intense and overwhelming. And she appreciated it, but she thought she was coming in for like a Sunday poetry writing class. <laughs> and it just, you know, and I realized as an American too, a lot of the work that I do does come from that space. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. It's not mm -hmm. relaxing. It is steeped in a lot of trauma and history. Mm -hmm. And that is something I have to be aware of. But they wrote these beautiful, like when I say beautiful, just really trying, like going for it. I'm like, don't, you don't have to match my experience, match your own experience. This is just a guide as far as like what I want you to respond to. So I think I had, I think the first poem they responded to is um, his Negro Speaks of Rivers poem, getting the title wrong. Mm -hmm. You know rivers, you know, like it's a very natural country. So like, you know, rivers speak to the history that, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to speak to to my history or links and uses history. Because for one thing, that's 100 years old. So, right. Yeah. True. No, it is. Yeah. Um, and then you're also on the board of a new startup theater company here in D.C. Yeah, you have done your research. <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's uh, Parisphere Theater. Mm -hmm. They're in their second or third season. And what, what drew you to be on the on the board of a startup theater? So it's a colleague, a former colleague of mine, and she asked me, and this was something she was super passionate about. And so, yeah, I've been on the board, and we're really, it's been really fun. It's challenging, mm -hmm. I think. You know, I watch how hard she works to sort of get funds and get, you know, interest and build, you know, a community around the theater. But it's been really cool to support her ideas and try to. So the thing I'm bringing to it is um, the educational component. Like we want it to be sort of something that goes into schools mm -hmm. or like, so what, you know, how can we engage more people in like mm -hmm. learning about it? And we're trying to commission a play. There's a playwrights notice out. Um, we want to do a play about the Harlem Renaissance as it happened in D.C., Oh, that's that would be fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, and what are you working on right now, as far as any kind of literary projects? So, projects? my project right now, um, two things. I just came back from a super intensive thing at Cal State. That this is something for all artists. Um, Cal State University system has a, like a, a summer arts program where I did um, I did a literary. It was, it was social justice writing. So social action writing actually is what it's called. And we did focused essays on social justice and making change and then using our own personal creative writing as a – so like advocacy writing and personal creative writing, which was a super interesting way of saying usually it's your story that is the most compelling. So we had, we had to write a lot of essays. So I think now I'm sort of in an essay thing. Like I want to keep that going. Um, but the – the major project that I'm working on is Black Coffee and Vinyl Presents. Mm -hmm. It's a new project that I just launched. And it is looking at, since I told you I don't like nature, it's looking at, like, <laughs> why am I obsessed with ice and specifically glacial ice? I mm -hmm. keep going back to Iceland because there's all these ice things I need to see. Mm -hmm. It's not actually a super icy country, but right. they have this, like, glacial lagoon where, like, big icebergs break off and, mm -hmm. like, I made a 14-hour journey just to go see it because I needed to see it. Um, hmm. 
So I've reached out, I put up an open call to visual artists, writers, and musicians to talk about any, to have them submit art that they've made either connected to ice, so like about glaciers, or if they live in an icy region. So like if you live in Greenland and you make art and your whole country is covered in ice, like I'm curious, you know, I wanted those people to submit. Um, and so it's just called Ice Culture is the theme. And so I wasn't sure what I, what I would get. Um, and then I've done a series of interviews that I'm going to roll out as part of the project in case I didn't get anything. Um, these were people like, I know this guy who runs an ice music festival in Norway and all the instruments are made of ice that you have to carve when you get really? to Northern Norway. Yeah. His name is Terhe and he's so serious about it. He's been doing it for 20 years. I kind of thought he was joking. And then I met him, like I Skyped with him and I was like, this is his life's work. And it's, really cool like he makes pianos and guitars and what what does music coming out of an ice instrument sound like have you heard it he yeah he has videos online he makes jazz wow it's not it's not always like pitch perfect uh-huh. you know but like but it is music it's... it is music he is like a full band he has wow. an ice record label and like they play in igloos he's the perfect person to interview for my project. I was like, I must talk to you. <laughs> but yeah, I also found that there's like an artist residency on a ship in the Arctic Circle and oh. another one in Antarctica. So like that's been, you know, fueling this project. And then I got um, submissions from like 400 artists. So people so feel You're not something. the only one out there that's yeah, gone to ice. Yeah, I was pretty surprised. <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, going back to your, your punk rock days. Mm-hmm. Even though you you never grow out of punk rock, of I don't course. Think so. so, your career as a writer, uh, if I were to sum it up, uh, it's sort of a it's a DIY kind of thing. Definitely. You know, you've when you wanted to do something, yeah, you may have lamented because no one was giving you the gig yeah. to start with, and then you thought, or your friends told you, well, you can just do it yourself, yeah, and you did it, and uh, along the way, for a little bit at least, you had a support from the commission Mm -hmm. that helped out. Um, And are you continuing to apply for grants or plan to? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I did apply for this cycle. I do want to put in a plug for the commission because I had only taught one class before I I received the grant. And being able to have the funds to hold classes and to do outreach for classes really catapulted my teaching career because I have students that came to those early classes that continue to come to things that I hold now. I teach at the National Portrait Gallery, so I do writing workshops for them. And I have some of the same students that are coming through that I was teaching during that time. Um, I don't know that without that funding and without that validation from the commission, I would have even really taken that on. I I sort of felt like once I have the funding, I want to give back to the city. And I already wrote. And so I was like, what else can I do? And one of the things that just to be clear about why I'm teaching. I'm teaching because I can, I know how to, but I'm also teaching because I want writers to get together and network. Mm -hmm. And so with the write, drink, read thing, the reason I hold it in bars is because writers are shy or they're introverted or sometimes when you go to a thing and you meet other writers, you're like, oh, I never have time to write. I wish I was writing right now. And I'm like, okay, I get it. We're going to write and then we're going to drink and we're going to network. So you can do both. And it was like a way for me to help, you know, give back to the community that I felt was, you know, a gap that was missing. 
And I think that's that's a wonderful take on it because writing is a very solitary uh, art form a lot of times, like some visual arts are. Uh, mm -hmm. And so to have something to break the ice and to, but at the same time, be working and be productive mm -hmm. at the same time is a is a fascinating concept. Uh, and it's great to hear that that you know the the grant from the commission kind of served as a as a launch pad for this you know this endeavor of yeah, yours, your, your entrepreneurism. Um, because that's what a, a lot of grantees tell us that, you know, if you're having to, you have to work, you have to work, you have to work. And the grant can give sometimes a little bit of extra space, you know, to make yeah, other definitely. things happen. And then that's, that's the opening that that can be the break for other things. So, uh, it's great to hear that that's been a success for you. Um, and, some really fascinating projects that you've turned out. Uh, I love the the punk rock flyer book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's really wonderful. <laughs> um, and we look forward to seeing uh, more great stuff from you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to The 202 Studio, a podcast series of the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today. Thank you.